Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening for those of you listening in from across the Atlantic and the Pacific. This is Bill Glasgow. I'm uh, Senior Vice President and Director of State and Local at the Volcker Alliance. I'm joined by Susan Wachter, Co-Director of Penn Institute for Urban Research, and this is Special Briefing. This is our last special briefing of the year, and it's a very opportune time for us to look back at what the CARES Act hath wrought and look ahead at what Congress may be willing to bring us either in the next few days or in the next Congress, or perhaps both, bring us in terms of aid as a vaccine rolls out across America and across the world. So welcome to you all. We're thrilled to have you all year. We look forward to seeing you next year's special briefings. We've taken a bunch of questions in advance from attendees such as yourself, uh, which is our standard practice, and we'll be getting to those in the Q&A section at the end. We have a couple items posted to the GoToWebinar app uh, for you. One is uh, the the Peterson Foundation's latest, latest numbers on how much of the uh, uh, of the CARES Act money has been spent or appropriated, as well as a great white paper from Mark Funkhauser, former Kansas City mayor and publisher of uh, former publisher of Governing Magazine, about uh, strategies, strategies that states, counties, and cities have adopted. I encourage you to download those anytime. They will also be available on the archive version of this webcast on the Volcker Alliance website and the Penn IUR website. Uh, we encourage you to join us uh, at any time at your leisure to look at all the past 15 or 16, I've lost count, uh, uh, special briefings. It's a great show today. We have some wonderful people. Dick Ravitch, Volcker Alliance board member and also my colleague at Penn IUR. Dick is going to talk about his concept of what a new CARES, a new CARES Act or coronavirus aid bill will be. Carolyn Bordeaux, uh, who's worked very closely with the Volcker Alliance on the Truth and Integrity and State Budgeting uh, Project and has now been promoted to Congress, flipped a seat in in the Atlanta suburbs. Congratulations, Carolyn. Uh, she's going to talk about what's ahead, what's ahead for Congress and her special views on health care. Carolyn will be followed by Mark Funkhauser, who I just mentioned, who's going to talk about some of the strategies that states and localities have, have adopted. And then we're going to get to the people who have to implement these, implement the budgets and make the important decisions. Julie Depp, budget manager for Pierce County, Washington. That includes Tacoma, second biggest county in the state, and has done a lot of creative work and is uh, is looking ahead to, to what's going to happen next year. And then finally, Fitzroy Lee makes a repeat appearance. Fitzroy is deputy CFO and chief economist for the District of Columbia, which is a city, county, and state all rolled into one. He keeps the, he does the forecasting, he keeps the numbers, and has totals before his quite a bit to say about how DC has been affected and what risks are if there's no more federal aid. So that's the lineup today. Welcome to you all. So let's, without further ado, go to my friend and colleague and Susan friend and colleague, Dick Ravitch, former New York State Lieutenant Governor, former chairman of the MTA, a leading voice in uh, a leading voice in civic affairs uh, locally and nationally. Dick, take it away. Delighted to join you once again. Let me say very simply that the politics are are complicated by the fact that we have two parties in control of separate houses. We have a president totally out of control of himself and a party that is afraid to rebut what he is asserting. And it's not a context ideally suited to a rational discussion of what is critically important for our country. God knows nobody will argue there are a lot of needs. Some are separable. Fixing mass transportation deficits, there is no alternative but massive amounts of federal money to deal with the enormous underfunding because of underutilization 
all mass transportation systems in our major cities. But on the fundamental question of aid to cities and states, I would respectfully suggest that a compromise that has no ideological objection should be simply this, that the revenue loss actually measured by against the 2020 or 2021, the revenue loss actually suffered by each city and state ought to be the amount of federal money that is received in the subsequent 12-month period. That way, there is no argument that the money is being used to increase benefits, to increase programs, to help incumbents get elected. It is simply to replenish the revenue lost as a result of the COVID crisis. And nobody can say that that's uh, an effort to help cities meet pension obligations that they failed to meet before or other programs. It would also be very helpful if the federal government were to extend a version of the Build America Bond Act so that the feds picked up a piece of the debt service on debt issued by state local governments for critically important infrastructure projects. But fundamentally, if the Congress cannot leave this session without addressing the revenue shortfall, which is something hard to measure prospectively because you just don't know what property taxes, which is the major source of revenue in most cities, what the shortfall is going to be until people have had an opportunity to file their requests for reductions based on the fact that their property is worth less because they're not getting rent. So all the rent defaults in all our major cities, from restaurants, from stores, from commercial enterprises, which have caused an enormous default or reduction in property value, isn't going to be realized until the, the formal applications have been sent. So we won't know until 2022. So I think if the, the responsible thing for the Congress to do is to say, we will appropriate money equal to what the revenue loss actually is in each of the following three years, measured against actuals, not against per, uh, projections. Well, that's a very creative solution, Dick, and we're going to return to that in the discussion. I might note that it's been kind of a mixed bag as, as for revenues. Uh, North Carolina is running a $4 billion surplus right now. But if you take $2 trillion, which is roughly the size of the CARES Act, and put it into state and local economies, you're going to have some very interesting results. So doing stuff ex post facto, as you say, may be, may be the answer. And to address that, and perhaps address what Congress should be doing right now, we're going to turn to Carolyn Burrow, Democrat from, this, from Georgia's 7th District, professor at Georgia State, former budget director for the Senate budget director, worked with a crew of Republicans at the Georgia Senate. And with that, Carolyn, please take it away. Well, thank you so much, Bill, and thank you all for having me. I do come with a little bit different perspective for most people here. I, one, have been steeped in the details of the policy world at various times in my life. I uh, was director of Georgia's Senate Budget and Evaluation Office during the Great Recession, and so was very, very involved at in that fiscal crisis where I was working under the Republican leadership in Georgia to balance the budget. And so I'm very, very sensitive and aware of the needs that state and local governments have. I most recently, though, have spent the past four years uh, campaigning for Congress uh, in the northeastern suburbs of Atlanta. And so also, not only do I have sort of this policy role or policy background, but also really have a sense of the politics and the sense of where people are coming from at this particular moment in our history. And I, I want to talk briefly to that because I think going looking back, going forward, we really face some very, very serious issues around our ability to solve problems as a country. 
And there was a moment that has always sort of stuck with me. Uh, It was early. I was campaigning back in uh, 2018, and I was doing a meet and greet in a living room uh, with a a number of people from the district. And something to know about the 7th District is very, very diverse. I have uh, 25% of the people in the district are born outside of this country. It's about 20% African-American, 19% Hispanic, uh, 14% Asian. And so I have, you know, this very international flavor, diversity, but also a huge contingent of people who, you know, support Trump and support the Republican Party. And there was a moment I was in this room and a black woman stood up and looked at me and said, I want you to explain something to me. You white people would sooner kill your own children then you would support a policy advanced by a black man. And she was talking about Medicaid expansion and what has happened in Georgia with healthcare reform. And Georgia, of course, did not expand Medicaid. And because of that, about 14% of our population is uninsured. Uh, Medicaid itself would have covered about 500,000 people. It means that the state does not accept between 2.2 and $3 billion a year in support for its healthcare system. This means that nine rural hospitals have closed uh, several in the past couple months because of the COVID crisis. We have the third worst number of uninsured uh, in the nation. So, you know, we're in this situation where politics has become in many ways more about culture and identity than the actual needs of people on the ground. And we are seeing this to really horrifying effect in the COVID crisis and what we're dealing with right now. And of course, you know, this one, I was like, well, you know, I I don't see things that way. I recognize the extraordinary needs that we have, but her comment is reflected in perhaps a less intense way in questions I have gotten throughout my time campaigning, which is why are people not voting in their self-interest? And it just goes back to this issue. We are deeply divided in this country and there are people, and perhaps if we look at ourselves, we are quite similar this way, that we are not voting in our self-interest. Um, we vote around issues of culture and identity much more than around self-interest. So we do, we have some very, very intense needs. And I know that uh, Bill and, and Dick are, have focused on the revenue side issues of what's happening with COVID and the, the fiscal crisis that state and local governments might be facing. And I would point out, you know, not all states are facing that kind of uh, revenue collapse that we saw, for instance, back in 2008 through that the sort of the Great Recession crisis. But in that context, uh, everyone needs to recognize that states are also, many of them, are significantly underinvesting in very, very important services that are needed on the ground in order to address the crisis. Just to talk about a couple of those, one is education. 40% of Georgia's budget is devoted to K-12 education. One third of that amount is simply, I'm sorry, 80% of that amount is simply salaries for teachers. So when you see a state budget like Georgia's, you can think of it as one third of that state's budget is just salaries for teachers. We have asked our teachers to become frontline workers in my district, uh, my son is doing digital schooling, so he is not in school, but about 60% of students in his school district, which is one of the largest in the state and in the country, it's Gwinnett schools, are back in person. And I just got noticed two, day, noticed two days ago that his teacher has come down with COVID. And I saw a story in the paper where another teacher in Cobb County is on a ventilator. And we have asked our teachers, we have tried to make, I know the the school districts have worked hard to try to make this situation safe, but there are a lot of needs there uh, to make sure that we are protecting our teachers when they go back to school, when they are in those classrooms. And I am deeply concerned that we have underinvested in the safety of our schools and making sure that we are protecting people. This extends to our other frontline workers, our police, our firefighters, our first responders in many places, but also very, very notably our public health systems. In Georgia and in many states, we have significantly underinvested in public health. We have never 
in this country been able to stand up the contact tracing, the support services that we have needed to be able to manage the pandemic. And we will need that kind of funding going forward uh, when we think about the distribution of the vaccines. So on a positive note, I just was on a a bipartisan briefing about the package uh, moving forward. Uh, It was uh, bipartisan and bicameral. And there were some very passionate people on both sides uh, absolutely committed to not leaving until there is uh, an aid package passed. And I think all of us see, you know, we are going into a very dark time with the disease. We are going into a very dark time in terms of our communities being able to stay afloat and that we absolutely, Congress cannot leave until they do pass some kind of relief for people. And that must include our state and local governments. Again, it is not just a revenue side issue. It is also protecting many of our public servants who are on the front lines and are literally risking their lives to make sure that we are able to go on with our lives. So with that, I will wrap it up. I think going forward in Congress, we do need to continue to help our communities work their way through this, include state and local governments, small businesses, and making sure that our families are able to to make it through this crisis until we have a vaccine and can get our country restabilized. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. Like Dick, very, very well put, very, very succinct, and uh, and the best of luck to you in the next Congress. Special briefing is a is a co-production of the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And with that, let me reintroduce Susan Walker, the co-director of Penn IUR, to take the next section. Susan. Thank you so much, Bill, and thank you very much to Gravich and uh, Congresswoman Bordeaux. We appreciate your comments, and I particularly appreciate your hopefulness, Congresswoman, of this bicameral, bipartisan approach. And as we go forward today, we help to inform the discussions, and our next speaker it will be very helpful in that respect, Brandon McComas, who is Peterson Foundation's uh, research associate and is responsible for tracking tool at Peterson Foundation of the CARES Act, how much of the $2 trillion approximately have been allocated, how much is left, how much is spent. Brandon, tell us about the latest numbers on where we are now. Well, thanks for having me, Susan. And a big thank you to you, Bill, and the your teams for hosting this today, as well as the great work that you guys do at the Volcker Alliance and at the Penn Institute. So as Susan mentioned, today I'm gonna give a brief overview of the federal funding that was provided for COVID relief, how much has gone out the door so far, and then I'm gonna speak to some general trends on how effective this aid to state and local government have been. As we all know, the pandemic led to these drastic reductions in economic activity, and they affected individuals, businesses, and governments across the country. So to help mitigate that economic damage, policymakers passed four major pieces of legislation, the largest of which, of course, was the roughly $2 trillion CARES Act that was passed in late March. So this support um, included programs to help individuals, such as the stimulus payments and the unemployment benefits, as well as programs to help businesses and state and local governments, like the Paycheck Protection Program and the Coronavirus Relief Fund. So as Susan mentioned, our team at the Peterson Foundation We are tracking the disbursement of about $2.3 trillion of COVID relief money, and that includes the funding allocated under those major programs I just mentioned, as well as some smaller programs like the grants issued to transit agencies and the FEMA Disaster Relief Fund. So, so far, about 80 to 90 percent of that $2.3 trillion has already been dispersed, meaning the federal government has sent the money out. And we're also looking at how much of that money has gone to recipients in each state. And as you can imagine, the more populated states like New York and California have received more aid, but it really differs by what program you look at, as well as if you look at it on a per capita basis or just the total overall dollar amounts. And for those who are interested in exploring these trends, you can find our interactive tracking tool at pgpf.org slash state tracker to explore this data for yourself. So now I want to pivot for a moment and talk about how state and local governments are faring and the initial effectiveness of the relief that was provided to them. So we all know that the pandemic took quite a hit on state and local budgets, right? So their tax revenues took a hit due to the slowdown in economic activity, but at the same time, they still need to provide crucial services and may need to increase spending on public health measures and social services to do so. 
So as a result, uh, broadly speaking, states are facing a substantial budgetary shortfall. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimated that states alone could face around $550 billion in budget shortfalls or between now and 2022. And the largest way in which the federal government is helping these state and local governments is through the Coronavirus Relief Fund, or the CRF, which of course is the, the $150 billion in direct federal aid for those governments. So looking at that funding specifically, essentially all of that $150 billion has been dispersed to state and local governments, meaning that the federal government has sent the money out the door. In regards to how much of that money has been spent by those governments, we know from a Treasury report that as of June 30th, about 25% of that money had actually been expended. But if you include the amount that had been allocated for spending purposes this year, that number would be around 75%, according to a survey from the National Association of State Budget Officers. But it is worth keeping in mind that those numbers are as of June 30th, which is the most recent national data source we're aware of. So we're not 100% sure how much of those CRF funds remain unspent, but it is worth noting that the deadline for state and local governments to spend any remaining funding is December 30th. So kind of turning the focus to how the relief fund helped. The money essentially did what it was intended to do, and it helped governments pay for COVID-related expenses that they may have struggled paying for otherwise. So for many governments, that money helped them pay for things like small business relief, healthcare costs for personal protection equipment, workforce development, and so on. But despite that support, there still remains budget holes at the state and local levels for some of these state and local governments, right? So as I mentioned before, states alone could face shortfalls up to $550 billion. The CRF would only cover about one quarter of that. And another downside is that state and local governments were constrained in how they could spend the money, as some of the panelists will probably get into later. So more specifically, the money could not be used to directly cover revenue shortfalls, of which many states are now facing since the pandemic slowed many parts of the economy. So overall, looking at this from a macroeconomic perspective, that $150 billion in federal aid to state and local governments was a fairly cost-effective program because it had one of the largest multiplier effects compared to other programs in the CARES Act. And of course, when I'm talking about multiplier effects, I mean the, the boost in the economy relative to the program's cost. So for every dollar of budgetary cost, the CRF boosted the economy by about 90 cents, according to the Congressional Budget Office. By comparison, that number was 70 cents for the unemployment benefits and 40 cents for the Paycheck Protection Program. Of course, not to say those other programs aren't effective, just that the CRF had a larger bang for the buck, if you will. And also keep in mind that the CRF was the largest of component of relief to state and local government. They received other elements such as the Education Stabilization Fund, those grants to transit agencies, and much more. So just kind of to wrap everything up, summarizing everything I talked about today, most of the money for the COVID relief that was in the CARES Act has already gone out the door or expires pretty soon. And looking specifically at the assistance to state and local governments, that money has helped those governments pay for COVID-related expenses and has been one of the more cost-effective elements of the fiscal response to the pandemic thus far. So with that, I'd like to thank Susan and Bill again and their teams for having me once again today. And with that, I'll turn it back to Susan. Thank you so much, Brandon, for that clear and concise summary spending out of the CARES Act. And now we turn to Mark Funkhauser, who is a former Kansas City, Missouri mayor and governing magazine publisher, who has just released a new white paper, a local government leader's playbook for the CARES Act, will give us more context on the innovative ways governments have, in fact, effectively, as Brandon so well pointed out, use, this, use these funds. Mark? Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this. Uh, the first thing I wanted to mention is just why we wanted to do this. This has just been an incredibly extraordinary time for local government. I mean, you have the uh, once-in-a-century pandemic, you have this incredible economic downturn. COVID showed uh, tremendous disparities in terms of its impact on African-American and Hispanic people compared to white people. And then you had the George Floyd death by the police, and it just 
it was, and, and we had an, an incredibly contentious election, which was administered by local government folks. So it's been incredible. And we wanted to be able to tell the story, so to speak, of how folks were dealing with this extraordinary time. And so our methods were primarily dozens of first-person interviews. Now, we looked at research and we looked at the uh, things that have been published, but mostly we talked to people, finance directors, city managers, budget officers, program people in cities and counties across the United States. And we looked at five major themes. What were the biggest challenges that they faced? How were they succeeding? And generally, we found that they were being very successful in very quickly adapting to the challenges. How were they using the money? And we relied on the surveys that the you know, GFOA and NACO and others had done. They used various methods to talk about how the money uh, was used. But then we also, of course, asked people, what are you doing? And what we found were opportunities to do things that they had seen as a problem for a long time. For example, the, the digital divide in uh, Durham, uh, North Carolina, they decided to use CARES money to provide broadband to public housing. And when students, children are forced to go to school remotely, uh, access to broadband is incredibly important. And so we found lots of innovation where people were adapting to the problem and finding new and creative ways to deal with it. We came up with seven major, what we called plays. And those are incredibly important uh, as we look at what happens next. If Congresswoman Bordeaux and her colleagues are successful, as we hope they will be, in producing another package, uh, these plays are going to be really important. And I think, so I'll run through those very quickly. The first thing we, we saw was that it's really important to lean on the professional associations. GFOA, NACO, the National League of Cities, ICMA, others have been uh, instrumental uh, in helping their members uh, deal with what was happening. Uh, the other thing we found was that it was very important to talk to your peers in the region we talked about linking arms, but one of the folks that we interviewed, T.C. Brodnax, the, the Dallas uh, city manager, talked about how he and the other city managers in Texas and the other big cities, El Paso and Houston and Austin, talk regularly. And they try to coordinate their movements. So when you have controversies like masks and closings and so on and so forth, it's incredibly important that you all be on the same page. We found that counties were incredibly important in this whole process. And the counties that often stepped in and coordinated these regional approaches, we found that while initially local governments were very much scrambling to deal with immediate crisis, it didn't take them long to figure out that they needed to balance uh, the short-term stuff with long-term stuff. And they needed to look at sort of longer building up the community, changing the way they did permitting, that'll probably be semi-permanent, uh, changing the way that they did remote meetings and remote work, which will probably be long-term. And they found themselves in new relationships, working with people that they had not worked with before. Those relationships become incredibly important going forward. We have five case studies in the report, and they're essentially deeper dives into um, things that seem to be working well. And I'm going to talk specifically about one of those in terms of innovation. And it actually is sort of, while I'm talking about a specific case, there are probably hundreds of similar stories across local government. But you know, the case study that, we, uh, that I'm talking about is Long Beach, California. And we interviewed a woman, uh, Meredith Reynolds, who is Park Planning and Partnerships Manager for the city of Long Beach. Well, when the pandemic came, uh, her department was essentially shut down and the city manager tapped her and asked her to work with the health department to stand up COVID testing sites, do procurement of test kits, secure laboratory services, and so on. And she found herself 
being a vital member of the team. And, and she was tapped because essentially she knew city government. She knew the rules. She knew how things worked. And the and that sort of thing, where the sort of basic skills that city workers and county workers have were adapted is incredibly important. Looking further at her department, Parks, um, after uh, a month or so, they developed virtual home-based activities, recreation at home programming, recreation reimagined, summer camps, and they used care stylers to develop a mobile recreation program that took physical recreation activities into neighborhoods that did not have access to nearby parks. That sort of thing, adaptability, flexibility is incredibly important. And we had folks tell us, one city manager after another tell us, that they were surprised at how agile and flexible and innovative their cities had proven to be in this crisis. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. And this is the good news story of local innovation. And now we are going to turn to two of these innovative leaders who on the ground have stepped up and tell us their current challenges, uh, what strategies they've adopted and what are there plans going forward with or without additional aid? And our next speaker, Julie DeMuth, who is budget manager for Pierce County, Washington. Uh, one of the subjects of pointing to the excellence of your work uh, in Mark's new paper, I suggest people go to read that in, in its entirety. And Julie, you will discuss strategies that Pierce County has adopted. Please take us to your county and your challenges and what you have done. Sure. Thank you, Susan. So Pierce County, we are a county of approximately 900,000 people uh, in Washington state. So we received a direct allocation from the federal government of $158 million in CARES Act funding. So early on, we convened a steering committee of community leaders and stakeholders to help provide input on how we should use this funding within our county. We then set up an internal team uh, to begin allocating the $158 million. So this team met multiple times a week, every week since May this year. We determined the funding allocations and we've closely monitored data on our expenditures and program outcomes. We uh, used a technology platform that we had to create an online report uh, and this report monitored data um, and it provides information to both our county council as well as the public. We have a dashboard that includes a little over 150 different performance measures, uh, which show the service levels and the outcomes for all of our CARES Act funded programs. Just to summarize how we used our funding, uh, the largest portion went to our public health emergency response, uh, $67 million. Um, so this funding was used primarily for our COVID-19 testing. We set up a mobile testing program, which helped really boost our testing capacity in the rural areas of our county. We also set up a rapid testing program for our frontline workers and K-12 schools within our county. Um, this also funded our case investigation and contact tracing program, uh, personal protective equipment. We provided direct allocations to all of our K through 12 schools within the county to assist with their uh, response activities. And it also covered our, our public health staff response costs. $44 million went to economic stabilization and recovery programs. We had a variety of programs within this category to help our business communities, primarily emergency small business grants, commercial rent and mortgage assistance. And then we had a specific program for restaurant assistance um, because our restaurants have been hit uh, extremely hard during this pandemic. We allocated $34 million to community response and resilience programs. So within this category, we have our emergency homeless sheltering and affordable housing support, uh, a rental and mortgage assistance program for residents in need, veterans emergency assistance. We have a large military base within our county. Um, we also provided behavioral health services, uh, childcare services, and assistance to food banks, among many other programs. And then finally, we allocated $12 million to what we call essential government services. This primarily supported the county as we shifted to a remote work environment. 
Um, it helped us modify our, our court system so that we could resume uh, jury trials in a socially distant manner. And we've also provided some support to uh, other local jurisdictions within our county. So in August, we began to realize that this funding was not necessarily getting spent at the pace we had anticipated. I think everyone initially thought it would be really quite easy to spend this money because the need was so great. So we created some additional reports, all of which are available to the public to begin monitoring our spend projections for all of the programs. So looking at the rate that we would actually expend the CARES Act funding through the end of the year. So as of last Friday, uh, we've expended $90 million of our $158 million allocation. We have $68 million to spend in the next 20 days, and we've been working hard to ensure all of that funding does get out the door. $37 million of that is formally obligated, and, and the remaining is committed to be spent by the end of the year. Um, as we begin to look at next year, uh, we had anticipated being able to use more of our CARES Act funding to um, essentially reimburse ourselves for staff response costs, which in turn we could then use to help offset our COVID-19 response costs in 2021 should additional CARES Act funding or, or other assistance not become available. But our funding has largely been prioritized to be distributed into the community. Um, so we, we don't anticipate having that available for us next year. So should we not have a second round of CARES Act funding, uh, we have set aside reserves from our general funds to continue our essential COVID-19 response activities, at least through the first quarter of 2021. You know, within Pierce County, we have not experienced the severe revenue reduction that was originally projected early on this year. Um, our sales tax has actually come in above budget. Um, we have had some reductions in program revenue and some other smaller sources, but you know we're largely in a good position revenue-wise. So we, we do have plans in place to continue addressing the pandemic as we move into 2021, but uh, we are, of course, hopeful that there will be a second round of CARES Act funding available. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. And we'll now turn it back to Bill, who's going to introduce our last speaker. Well, thank you, Susan. Thank you, Julie. What you described about your revenues this year are very significant. Uh, you, you see in states that are uh, on income taxes like California, income tax revenues at a great stock market so far this year, income tax revenues are, are, are doing rather well. On the other hand, if you if you pump two trillion dollars into into a, a twenty trillion dollar economy in eight months, you would expect that money to have to have a macro a macro effect, as as, as Brandon pointed out. And we still have a lot to, to work out here, but there are immediate needs, as Dick pointed out. We're going to go from the West Coast to the East Coast now. As I mentioned before, Washington D.C. is a city, county, state school district, fire districts. It's It's got everything, pretty much everything under one roof and under one balance sheet. The place that, the, the place that, that makes sense of all this is the CFO's office as part of the bailout of Washington, D.C. some years ago, an independent CFO was established. So it's, I think, unique in unique in state and city in state and city affairs, as is Washington D.C. itself, it's the only it's the only jurisdiction in the United States that has its own section in the Constitution. No vote, but its own section. So, why don't I turn it over to, to, to Fitzroy Lee, Chief Economist, Deputy CFO, to, to describe how Washington has been hit, what you've done with your money, and what comes next, especially if Congress doesn't ante up more. Okay, thank you, Bill. Um, good morning, everyone. And thanks again, Bill and Carlin, for inviting me. So as Bill says, what I'll do is start out by talking about what the CARES Act did on, on the macroeconomic side for the district. So we've heard how it has um, helped to um, boost spending in certain areas in different jurisdictions. In terms of on the revenue side, um, just before Congress passed the CARES Act bill, we had to do a revenue forecast, which would become the basis of the district's budget. And in that forecast, um, we assumed that unemployment rate um, in the second quarter would rise almost to 18 percent. 
we expected personal income, which was growing in usually grows in the Washington DC at around four percent. We expected that to be flat, and as a result of that, you know, we forecasted that for fiscal year 2020, we would have a revenue shortfall of about 720 million dollars. And then for the following fiscal year, where um, the year that they were planning the budget for, we would have a further shortfall of almost $800 million. Um, and that, that's about between 7 and 8% of our own source revenue. However, as a result of the CARES Act, what we found was that for, and it was passed really shortly after we had made this forecast and the budget had been and the budget had been finalized. According to BEA figures that came out on um, second quarter personal income, the pandemic response, but both the pandemic assistance for unemployment insurance and the income boost, as well as the PPP, boosted um, income, the personal income by about $4.5 billion, which is about 7% of the personal income in Washington, D.C., as a result, instead of being flat, the personal income in the second quarter actually grew 6.5%. We had also expected in our forecast that unemployment rate would be almost 18%, and it came in at just under 12%, mostly because um, the, protect, the payroll protection program actually helped to keep some jobs that would have otherwise been gone. So because of that, what we've found is that we've Unlike a lot of places, our fiscal year runs from October through September. So we, you know, a couple months ago, we completed um, the fiscal year 2020, and we're now tallying the revenue. And what we're finding is that we'll still have a shortfall, but it's instead of 720 million, it's going to be a little under 500 million. But one development that has come as a result of that is that as we have seen the infection rates um, soar, we have slowed down, slowed down what we're seeing in terms of the reopening. So in the summer, the mayor had put out a plan called Open DC, which would look at um, opening the district gradually in phases. So, you know, going on to what happens next, we have to make um, quarterly forecasts. So we made a forecast in September. And in that forecast, um, we recognize that fiscal year 2020 would come out better than we had expected. But as a result of the delay in the reopening of the district, we're now forecasting that in addition to the almost 800 million shortfall that we had forecasted um, in the summer, we'll be, we think that there will be an additional 200 million um, shortfall because of the you know, soaring infection rates and the fact that we're now um, delaying um, the reopening. It's behind the schedule that we had anticipated in our forecast. So then the question is, how do we address the, that shortfall? At the beginning of fiscal year 2020, we had come off a year of record surpluses and our reserve was really strong. We spent almost a billion and a half of that um, reserves balancing the fiscal year 2020 and fiscal year 2021 budget. We've also spent or allocated all the CARES Act funding already. And what I'll say is that I must say that DC, because of the healthy reserves that we started on, didn't do as badly as many other states. And we actually increased spending in the fiscal year 2021 budget because as a result of the pandemic, we had increased demand on education and human services and housing. So there was some increase. And part of that, um, of course, was funded by reserve, decreased spending in some selected agencies, um, freezing labor cost agreements um, for the next three years or so. But we have exhausted all of those resources that we've had. And what I'll say, um, the mayor and the council is now planning a supplemental budget to address that shortfall. And I don't know exactly where the areas of the, the cuts will come. But what I can say is that almost 50% of the budget is in human support services and public education. And those are the areas now, as I said, just because of the requirements that you have remote learning and then 
you know, as a consequence of the pandemic, there's a need for more human services spending. So as we go into go further into fiscal year 2021, if there are no um, further pandemic relief, it's going to become much more difficult to hold the line. And what you might see is that, you know, as somebody mentioned earlier, putting in the CARES Act is it's a direct boost. But preventing cuts in the state and local government is also stimulative because it's with all the other um increases on unemployment that the the lockdown has caused. Further cutting back on state and local government and having layoffs would be another blow to the economic recovery. So, you know, I'll I'll just end there and turn it back over to Bill. Thank you, Fitzroy. And uh, we have time for questions and answers. I will turn it to Bill in a moment to go to some of the questions if we have time we are going to end on time, as we always do, that we've received from you. But let me just ask a quick question that really good, that Fitzroy, you've already asked and answered yourself. But I'll start with Julie and anyone else, perhaps Brandon and Mark, you can weigh in. And the question is, what should Congress do? What would be the most impactful move now for Congress for, from the perspective of your local challenges, both in the vaccine rollout and in the uh, dark period ahead. Julie? Well, I think it goes without saying that additional funding is critical for all, all states and counties as we move into 2021. At this point in the pandemic, we have to continue our testing programs, our case and contact investigation programs. We have been preparing to receive the vaccine. We've been working with our state on an implementation plan. We've purchased infrastructure to receive and store the vaccine. But we anticipate, you know, the next six to nine months are still not going to be normal for us. So we need to, at minimum, be able to support our public health response efforts. And we still have large impacts to our business communities and our residents. So if we're able to get additional funding, we can continue supporting those programs as well. Yeah, I, I was going to say I, I want to support a lot of what um, Julie just said. And I know the mayor's already put out a plan for the point of vaccine as it becomes available. And as we all know, it, the vaccine is the light at the end of the tunnel that we've been waiting for. But we know that, you know, this is unprecedented it, deployment of the vaccine on an unprecedented scale. And so it will take some time. So in the meantime, you know, one of the in terms of what, what I would like to see in the CARES Act is support for um, revenue shortfalls. Because uh, as I said um, earlier, um, it would have um, a big multiplier effect by preventing state and local governments from instituting massive layoffs, which would just exacerbate um, the, the economic um, downturn that we have seen. And so, you know, adding that um, um, with increased support for the, the, because deploying the vaccine will also be an added expense. So some support for um, the deployment of the vaccine when it becomes available. Thank you, Fitzroy. Brandon and Mark, perhaps start with Brandon. Do you have thoughts? What would be your proposal to Congress? Well, that's that's a good question. I, I defer to others as regards to what specifically may be in there. But I will say, you know, the recent data showing the stalling of the economy has made it pretty clear that this economic crisis is going to continue well into next year. And at that point, most of the federal money, unless more is enacted, will be gone. And many state budgets might not be able to pick up that slack. You know, so in addition to managing the spread of COVID-19, getting the economy back on track is kind of the number one priority right now. So it seems very likely that more federal aid will be necessary to make this happen. And I'd like to turn back to, to Dick Ravage for, for a second, just to expound a, a little bit in the in about the, the couple of minutes we have left. If states, counties, and cities they would could, could come back to could come back to to Congress to fill revenue gaps, how would they do this? How would they certify the revenue loss when the, the annual reports don't come out till many, many, many months? after the end of the fiscal year. How would this work exactly in, in your discussions you've had with, with members of Congress and the Senate? Well, let me say very simply that what this last hour has demonstrated is that there are four separate causes that argue in favor of substantial increased federal aid. 
One is the revenue loss that cities and states are receiving. Second is the increased costs in healthcare and in education that are a function of the so minimal social obligation in the educational and health care area to maintain a, a human level of services. Three is the of unemployment on municipalities and cities in the broadest sense of the word, in terms of lost tax revenue, in terms of lost of increased benefits that are already statutorily promised. And all of these constitute an equally compelling uh, um, uh, reason for the federal government to spend money. And depending on one's political views, they, you could argue, as I would, that all these things require a vast increase in expenditure of federal aid. But unfortunately, Mitch McConnell is the, is the majority leader of the state senate, and I'm not, and none of us are. And therefore, we have to deal with a real world. And therefore, how are we going to get legislation passed now? giving the Biden administration a chance to address the more fundamental issues. And really, in many ways, Carolyn said it most succinctly, and that is that the COVID crisis has exposed a lot of pre-existing social circumstances, social and economic needs in our society, whether it's inadequate health care or inadequate education spending, that we're now beginning to address, but you can't deal with it in December of 2020. You have to deal with it in the course of the next couple of years for all the reasons that have been stated. So what is of, of immediate and compelling need is to replace lost revenue. So at the very least, cities and states are not short what they had previously agreed to spend to meet social, health, and educational needs. As is often the case, Dick, you get the last word. We have some other questions pending, uh, but we're just about uh, to the top of the hour. And as Susan says, we, we do want to end on time. So up on the screen, but by the way, you, you have been listening to special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. This and all of our Prior broadcasts are all available on the Penn IUR and Volcker Alliance websites. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.